You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. I've been talking to Michael Weinstein of Cole Shots about the trial of former Goldman banker Roger Ng and the testimony of the star witness in the case, his former boss, Tim Leisner. So, Michael, we were talking about the fact that so far the prosecution has introduced a lot of testimony about wild spending sprees, but not by Roger Ng and whether that makes a difference. What's your opinion about the Sullivan standard? Is it too broad? Well, Sullivan, in my realm, uh, amongst those of us who keep and write about the First Amendment and media law, it is our Brown versus Board of Education, our Marbury versus Madison. It's a foundational watershed case that is central to the link between First Amendment protections and the operation of our democracy, the way that we keep a check on those who are in power, and the way that we make sure that defamation law can't be wielded and weaponized to silence critics. And so I think it's it's critically important as a foundation to our democracy. There are a lot of really thoughtful and I think important critiques of the way that the Sullivan Doctrine has expanded and grown and morphed over the years, and particularly the ways that the definition of who qualifies as a public figure has become confused and complicated uh, in our social media landscape. But I have really serious concerns about the dialogue moving to a place in which uh, the Sullivan standard itself is potentially on the chopping block. I think it's a a critically important protection that um, helps preserve robust dialogue uh, on, on really important matters of public concern. Do you attribute this to President Trump's attacks on the media? A number of us have written about the impact that the Trump presidency quite clearly had on the tone of dialogue about the press. It was really the first time in modern history where we had a president characterizing the press and vilifying the press in such strong terms and referring to them as the enemy of the people and undercutting the press function in such significant ways. And, you know, as as early as 2015, 2016, then-candidate Trump um, was 
saying things like he hoped that we could, his language was, open up libel law, that he thought it was really important to undercut the constitutional standards that we had in this space to make it easier for people like him to sue the press for defamation and to prevail. That's Ronnell Anderson-Jones of the University of Utah Law School. Remember when GameStop spiked more than 1,000% in less than a week and triggered giant losses at some hedge funds? Might it actually have been a case of traders banding together to take down hedge funds after all? Joining me is Joshua Mitz, a professor at Columbia Law School. Start by telling us about the SEC's view of that GameStop spike in January of 2021. So in October of last year, the SEC released a staff report which concluded that some of the popular narratives which were out in the press concerning the events of January 2021 were misguided, were incorrect. Specifically, they focused on two narratives. One was called a short squeeze, the idea being that The price of GameStop went up because short sellers were forced to close their positions, and they said there wasn't a short squeeze here. And the second conclusion they made is that there wasn't what's called a gamma squeeze, which occurs when option dealers have to buy lots of stock to cover their losses. So they made these two conclusions, which ended up serving as the basis for their policy initiative in this area. So these conclusions were really quite critical because they ended up shaping the SEC's rulemaking effort, which is beginning actually now. They just released a rule last week, the first of several, based on the conclusions in this report. So you and a group of academics have studied this, and you are the lead author of this study. Tell us about your findings. So we went back to the data, you know, in light of what we had anecdotally read, about the way in which short sellers were affected, and and many of whom were quite devastated financially as a result of what occurred with GameStop. So we went back to the report and we looked at the data that the SEC used, and we saw a number of points in their report which were concerning to us. For example, they stated that they cut off their sample on December 24th, 2020, which basically meant that they were not able to capture any of the short selling activity that had occurred prior to the end of December. But anecdotal media reports were that some of the largest short sellers in GameStop stock had built up large positions before December 24th. So it seemed to us just on its face that the report was using a data set that was problematic. It was too short. It was cut. They had made all sorts of adjustments and and modifications saying we're only going to look, for example, at short sellers with extremely large positions. And we said, you know what, let's go back to the data. Let's see what we can put together and let's see if we come to the same conclusions. And we did that. And we ended up coming to a very different set of conclusions. We found that when one looks back and includes all the data, when you don't make these kinds of cuts and filters and modifications that the SEC was doing, you actually get a picture much closer to what had been originally reported anecdotally, namely that short sellers were forced to cover their positions. In fact, in a compositional sense, the majority of the purchase activity was, it seemed, short sellers covering and closing their positions. So we found, in effect, that 
the SEC just made some bad decisions with the data that they were using. And we wanted to show the commission what could be done and the sorts of conclusions that might be accessible if one makes better decisions with the available data, if one looks more broadly at the sample. And so we thought that would be a helpful contribution to the public policy debate, especially because this report was so critical in shaping the SEC's response. Does your report mean that it was, in fact, you know, David versus Goliath, where Davids were joining together en masse to stick it to Wall Street Goliaths? That's certainly a conclusion one could draw. We don't think our report necessarily goes so far as to pin down who the Davids and who the Goliaths might be. And one of the points we say in our introduction is that we do not have de-anonymized data. So we're not able to say who was trading because we're not entirely sure who was trading. We can't answer that question with certainty. But what we can say is that it seems that lots of short sellers were forced to cover their positions, were forced to close their positions. We can say that it seems that options dealers were forced to hedge by buying lots and lots of shares. So the basic narrative that ordinary investors, retail investors came together and ended up purchasing and in expressing their views, their anti-short seller views through buying shares and buying options and other forms of trading, that, that basic narrative seems consistent with our findings. And I think our point is not that we've proven the narrative is right, but that the SEC may have been too quick to reject that narrative. And so that's why it's essential to go back to the drawing board, to take a look again at the data, and to ask what the right regulatory response should be. So what are some of the possible regulatory solutions you think could work? Sure. So we think as a starting point, the SEC needs to focus on the role of social media in trading. Uh, I and a group of other, about a dozen law professors, filed a rulemaking petition two years ago in which we asked the SEC to lay down the rules of the road for posting on social media and trading at the same time. We asked the commission to clarify, for example, that if you say that you have a position in a stock and then immediately change that position, that you have to update the market and keep the market informed as to the truth of what you said originally. So if you say you're short or you're long a stock and that's not the case, you shouldn't leave that information out there for investors to rely on. You should be transparent if you've voluntarily spoken to keep the market informed when what you said is no longer true. We think basic rules of honesty and transparency like these would go a long way towards making the market fairer and more of a place that ordinary investors can invest their capital in rather than be subject to potentially fraudulent or manipulative trading schemes through social media. Do you think that it would be difficult for the SEC to start policing social media? Well, we think what's critical is to lay down clear rules of the road that don't restrict what people can say about companies, because that's a basic matter of freedom of speech, but rather say, when you voluntarily choose to inject information into the market, when you tell people that you're short or long a stock, you have to be transparent and forthcoming. That has to be true. If it's not true, then you're misleading the market. So the goal is not to tell people what they can believe or how they can invest. The goal is to simply say that we want investors to invest with confidence, knowing that when representations are made about trading positions and about what companies are worth, that those 
aren't, in fact, fraudulent schemes in disguise. This is not a controversial point. The SEC has said this in general, but they haven't come forward yet and put forward clear rules of the road for social media. We also think that the role of short selling is incredibly important, and it's essential to uphold and protect the integrity of the market so that short sellers can perform the important function that they do in our markets. Where else did the SEC falter here? Well, I think what this episode shows is the need for a rigorous approach to data analysis. And I think what surprised so many market participants, not only our committee, but also observers, is just how quickly the agency dismissed two fundamental explanations for what happened in January 2021, a short squeeze and a gamma squeeze. We weren't the ones who brought this to the, to, to the market's attention. People were saying this even before January 2021. Uh, market participants were telegraphing, were saying that they were going to be engaging in a short squeeze and a gamma squeeze. And so to reject this outhand on the basis of partial data, what I think it shows is that the SEC needs to fundamentally engage as an organization and culturally with the role of data in driving policymaking. And this is, we think, you know, something that starts with organizational culture, it starts with a commitment, and it starts with engagement. And that's why what we've done is we've made ourselves available to the commission and to staff to help them in that effort. We don't just want to be critical, we want to be constructive. And we've said, to the extent that we, that we can help in this process, that we can help you work through this complex mountain of information, let us come alongside. And we think that could be a model for partnership, uh, which could really lead to better policy in the end. Since it seems that the meme stock frenzy is is over, do you think the SEC is less likely to spend time on this? Well, while it's true that what happened in early 2021 has largely petered out, the fact that is that financial technology is continuing to evolve. The fintech sector, apps like Robinhood, they're maybe in their first generation or second generation right now, but we're continuing to see more and more innovation in this space. So I think the future is greater and greater engagement, individual market participants. Uh, Today, people just don't want to leave their money in a 401k index fund and come back in 30 years. They want to be engaged. They want to be participants in the market. So I think actually what we're seeing is an evolution which makes this rulemaking even more urgent because the next crisis is just around the corner. And one of the challenges we've seen for regulators is too much of a backward focus. So the goal is not to fix what happened in 2021. The goal is to understand what happened in 2021 so that we can be ready for the next technological innovation. And the starting point for that is good data in a rigorous engagement so that that we can put forward the best policy that protects investors. I want to switch for a moment to the class action lawsuit against Robinhood. It was filed by customers who claim that Robinhood didn't properly disclose how it sacrificed execution quality in favor of the highest payments from market makers. Robinhood is making a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. Do you have a take on how strong the case is for dismissal? Well, I think, you know, it's always hard to opine on on a case um, in a situation where, you know, you're reading what's in a complaint and judges are often in the difficult position of having to decide whether they really want to allow a case to go forward. At the motion to dismiss stage, the court isn't deciding whether a party is guilty or not or liable or not. Rather, the court has to decide, is there enough here? So I think if we take a step back and ask fundamentally, what is the quality of these disclosures? Well, you know, there's a real challenge that fintech firms face 
around offering their products in a way that attracts customers while at the same time being transparent about who's paying ultimately for the service. And I think that there are, in fact, profound questions as to whether Robinhood's disclosures were adequate. But ultimately, as to whether those questions rise to the level of a cognizable legal claim, I think it's a question that a judge is going to have to answer. I, and I think any other legal expert, would not rush to judgment, in part because questions of disclosure can often be very, very close. But I think ultimately, that what the court is going to have to look at is what would a reasonable customer have thought if you're being told on the one hand that you're able to trade for free, how much information were you being given about execution quality? And was that information material to the customer's decision to use the product? These are challenging questions, and I, I don't envy the court. I think that uh, sometimes you know judges have to make very close calls. This strikes me as a case where it's not apparent at first glance which way the court is going to go, but it's going to ultimately turn on what message was sent to customers of the product and did they understand ultimately how they, in effect, were paying for something that was marketed to them as free. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Joshua Mitz of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It centers on former President Donald Trump's infamous phone call to find 11,780 votes for him in Georgia. 
Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has been investigating whether Trump's unsuccessful call to flip the state in the 2020 presidential election was criminal. And she's been investigating that for more than a year and won't convene a special grand jury until May. Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell talked to Georgia's top election official, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, about the investigation. So what does Raffensperger think about the pace of the Fulton County DA's investigation? I think Raffensperger, from our interview, just sounded a little exasperated uh, as to why this is taking so long. And one of the reasons we did the story is that I've heard that from a number of lawyers who've been following this. The issue, which is you know, Trump's phone call to Raffensperger in, on January 2nd last year, the, the infamous phone call asking him to find 11,780 votes, is at the crux of it. And I've been following the Manhattan District Attorney, you know, investigation of the Trump and the Trump Organization, which involves eight years of tax returns, which, you know, included a battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court twice. It includes like millions of business documents going back two decades. So there's a huge volume of material that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has to sift through as it, you know, tries to decide whether or not charges against Trump himself are justified. In contrast, this Georgia case, like the amount of evidence, first of all, it's a window of time that involves only like two months from mid-November to mid-January. It's it's a very small amount of paper or document evidence, not millions and millions of documents, but enough that you could fit into a small filing box and put in the back seat of your car. So it's not as though she has to boil the ocean, the, the district attorney of Fulton County, to get to where she wants to go. But it's clear that she wants to build a wide-ranging conspiracy case, almost like a RICO case, conspiracy to overturn the results of the election in Georgia. So that's in contrast to like just basically bringing a charge against Trump for you know what could be painted by a prosecutor as a, telling a state official to do something fraudulent in order to benefit him, the president and presidential candidate. Does Raffensperger think that she should just go small, just get it over with? He doesn't have an opinion on whether or not it's criminal. It's more that, you know, this is an issue. He's, he's, he himself is a politician. He's running, you know, he ran for office and became Secretary of State of Georgia. Then he became, you know, internationally famous last year and wrote a book uh, about his experience. And now he's running for re-election. And he's running in May. There's a primary against a Trump-backed uh, someone who wants to take him out on the Republican side. So he's got a battle for his life in Georgia, you know, based on his willingness to basically follow uh, the letter of the law last year. So I think it's sort of been this whole thing has been he's not a hero in the Republican Party. It's not as though he's a widely lauded guy for what he did. He is in many circles for standing up for the rule of law and the integrity of the Georgia election. But, you know, he's reviled in Trump land, and that includes a big piece of Georgia. So he's in, a, he's in a tricky position. You know, he's not, like, friendly with the Fulton County DA. It's not like he's trying to get Trump to be found guilty. He, he, I think he just wants this thing to be over. On top of that, in a letter that the Fulton County District Attorney wrote last month to a Superior Court uh, for permission to get to convene a, a sp- and panel a special grand jury, the, the DA, Fawnie Willis, wrote that, um, you know, she needs a special grand jury with subpoena power because some witnesses have been reluctant or have been hesitant or refused to cooperate until they are being forced to. And then as an example, she cited Raffensperger's quotes in an NBC interview when he was promoting his book. And in that interview, 
Raffensperger was asked, uh, are you cooperating with the uh, Fulton County DA's investigation? And he said, yeah, our offices, we've turned over lots of documents, our people have been made available to her, and if she wants to speak to me, all she has to do is get a subpoena, and you know, I'll comply with it, follow the Constitution. So he was portrayed in her letter to the court as uh, one of these characters who's like refusing to cooperate, when in fact he's been cooperative. So I think there's a little bit of just exhaustion and a little bit of frustration that he's now being painted as a a guy who's not even cooperating with the investigation. So there's probably an element of that. I don't know that, but he's kind of like a man without a country. He is a Republican, but he's, you know, not a Trump Republican. He's fighting for his political life in May. So I think he'd just like this whole thing to be over so he can move on. You can subpoena a witness for a regular grand jury, can't you? Why does she need a special grand jury to subpoena a witness? Right. That's a good question. And that's another reason I wanted to do the story is that she, first of all, wrote this letter in January, late January, to get a convene a special grand jury. The thing she cited was a statement made by Raffensperger last October. So logically, last October, when Raffensperger said that, she could have a week later gone to the Fulton County Superior Court and said, I need a special grand jury. Why it took two months to get there is another reason I wrote the story. This thing does seem to be taking much longer than it should. And Raffensperger said he thought that she was making a political thing out of this. And to some extent, that could be the case, because, you know, even if she wants to build a complex RICO case, now we're into a second year, and the special grand jury is not going to start until May. She could have had the special grand jury convened like now, or I guess two, there were two-month terms, March, April, but it's put it off to May. So then, you know, that's going to be two months of you know, and then maybe extended. You know, she says she's going to make a decision on charges by sometime this year. So basically two full years from January of last year or February of last year, well into the second half of this year, are going to be consumed by, like, this is not the most complex, this is not special counsel Robert Mueller trying to get to the bottom of Russian interference in the 2016 election. This is a phone call and a few other phone calls between officials, between the White House and Georgia state officials and Rudy Giuliani somewhere on the periphery. There's just not that much evidence there. So um, even if she does want to go in a big way on this case to a lot of outsiders that I spoke to who do not want to be quoted, it just seems like it's taking like a long time. Well, I've been asking the question, why is it taking so long for months now? Because of all the investigations, it seemed like this one was the most compact and doable. Do you think she has trepidation about indicting a former president? No, I don't think that. Uh, I do think, and we addressed this in the article, there is a you can just do it as a former U.S. attorney in Atlanta told us. Michael Moore said he viewed this as, you know, do it fast. Just uh, use a regular grand jury, get an indictment based on the phone call. And uh, he referred to it as a rifle shot case. You just go in, present the evidence, uh, treat the former president as you would like a, like pass him through the, the case through the grand jury like you know, a shoplifter or a car thief. And by the way, we have a former president of the United States who made this phone call. Uh, we have enough evidence. Can you give us an indictment? And the grand jury will and then go there. But so that's that would have been one way to do it. He said way, way back just to sort of, you know, get on this. Um, I think I believe and and there's some there's real legitimacy to this. I think Fawny Willis's goal is to build up enough evidence that there were so many phone calls 
because Trump in this phone call can say he actually believed there was fraud. Therefore, that's why he wanted Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. But if she's able to you know, bring together enough evidence by enough officials in the White House, like Mark Meadows, by someone like Rudy Giuliani, that there was a concerted effort to deceive and, you know, cajole and pressure Georgia state officials like the governor, Brian Kemp, to uh, participate in an effort to overturn the validated electoral results. Then when the, the phone call gets presented as the key piece of evidence, the smoking gun, it'll be far more convincing than if you just go to a jury with this phone call and say, what do you think? Because a jury of 12, one or two people might think, hey, you know, maybe he did believe there was fraud. But if you can lay out, uh, you know, a granular, detailed, exhaustive case about all these different people associated with the president, doing the president's bidding, trying to overturn the result in Georgia, and then finally this phone call, then I think she has a point here. Um, it, it's far more convincing to a jury. You could get some fence-sitter or someone who might have doubts about just the one phone call and say, oh, yeah, this was definitely you know, the, uh, the icing on the cake or you know, part of and the most serious overt attempt action that was taken to try to subvert the election result in Georgia. And then in the meantime, Trump has called her a radical, vicious, racist prosecutor. Is she getting protection? What's, how has that changed things at all? Well, she asked for extra protection for you know the courthouse where the grand jury is going to meet starting in May. So she's issued a statement. Letitia James has also issued a statement. I actually, I think that's that's one reason, you know, because this has taken so long now, you know, Trump could go off like that a few weeks ago. If this case had been charged last year, this would no longer be, you know, he'd probably still be railing at her. Uh, but, you know, it wouldn't be this group of three prosecutors who are all focused on Trump these days, two in New York and one in Georgia. So that would be Willis, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, and the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, who took over when Cy Vance retired. Let's turn to Trump's accountants for a moment, because they said a decade of financial statements can't be relied on. Tell us what Mazers has said. Their letter, which was sent to uh, the Trump Organization last week and filed in court, the letter is kind of squishy. Uh, It doesn't say last 10 years of statements on the financial condition of the Trump Organization. It doesn't say that the information is false, but it does say that basically we believe that the people you send it to, for example, banks, insurance companies, or you know, government overseers, these should not be relied upon. So this, I think, is a direct result of the massive filing that the New York Attorney General basically submitted to court a month ago as part of our ongoing battle to get you know the Trump family to actually cooperate a little more, provide more documents, and to basically sit for interviews. And Trump and several of his children have refused to do that so far. And her argument, Letitia James's argument last month, in a 113-page filing, she laid out, she used examples of like seven or more different assets, property assets of the Trump organization, and to varying degrees pointed out the, you know, like the the huge, you know, the inflated asset values that the Trump organization had assigned. And in some of the cases, let's say, a, you know, a piece of property north of New York City um, was valued at, um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll just say it was valued at you know, $500 million because because um, they're planning to 
carve it up and build, you know, a bunch of mansions, which each of which could be sold for $50 million. So a very uh, aggressive, like top of the market valuation of the property based on what could happen to this land when they plan to build all these mansions and sell them at top dollar. But there's, there's all sorts of assumptions, including that the, the town will cooperate. They've got the, the permits. Um, to build all these mansions and sell them takes years to do. It's not something you can say today and then sell tomorrow. Um, they're bringing all that value forward to an assumption of like right now, yeah, it's worth a $500 million, say, because that's what they can do. But it's all hypothetical. It's all based on the most positive, you know, maybe even more than positive, but like uh, impossibly optimistic assumptions at every angle to assume like the best possible outcome uh, for like a, a string of five to 10 assumptions that all come out completely the way Trump envisions them. Then, and only then, can you value it $500 million. But the five hundred million won't be there for ten or fifteen or twenty years. But it's bringing it all forward to now. So there was there's a series of valuations like that that Letitia James highlighted. So I think the Mazars people in their letter, it seems like you know they probably realize this is not a good look that they've signed off on these hyperbolic assumptions of property values based on computations that were given to them by the Trump organization, and they didn't question them. So I think it's not so much that it's false, because, yeah, if, if everything goes fantastically well in every possible way for every property, you know, going forward, then, yeah, it's like it's, it's, it's possible that this 500 million valuation or 1 billion, whatever the valuation is, uh, will be true. But that's only the most hopeful 5% chance or less of that actually happening. So I think they were stuck in this place where they realized, you know, especially now that charges have been filed against the Trump organization and more charges, uh, civil charges are being considered by the New York Attorney General. It's like they don't want to be there anymore. So I, I think they probably basically informed the Trump organization last year they want out. And now this is finally just burbling out, you know, surfacing in the public domain now. Despite all the squishiness and, you know, this depends on that, if they prepared them and those statements can't be relied on, it's hard to escape the conclusion that they did something wrong somewhere. Right. And and I think Mazars is concerned that they'll be held liable if there's any sort of regulatory action or litigation against the Trump organization for basically misrepresenting its financial position to banks and insurance companies. I think Mazars is trying to you know, take a step to like not be on the hook or as much on the hook as they could otherwise be. This is bad for Trump because, you know, he's fond of saying, well, I have the best lawyers, I have the best accountants, I have the best, you know, whatever, until they turn on him. Michael Cohen used to be, like, the best until Michael Cohen decided to cooperate with the government. Then Cohen became a, a very different character. And, you know, but he's, he, he has said in the past, Trump has, that he has the best accountants. So he's not going to be saying that anymore. Can Letitia James use that in her investigation or in her case? I think it could be used as supporting evidence, right? It's not It's not like a, a witness for the defense suddenly becomes a witness for the prosecution as much as a witness for the defense basically starts easing away from it. It's like, we're not comfortable anymore. If this were a publicly traded company, that would be like shareholder lawsuits and the stock price dive and that sort of thing. Thanks for being on the show, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. 
I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. <laughs> 